Now a message from our advertiser, Bristol Myers Squibb. At last, Sotictu, the Kravacitinib, a new FDA-approved treatment option. To learn more, visit www.sotictuhcp.com, spelled www.sotyktuhcp.com. You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. So I'm very excited to talk about a subject that I think most, if not all, people that practice in dermatology see, and it's the subject of psoriasis, which obviously gets a lot of headlines. And I'm very proud to say that I'm president of the fan club of the person I'm talking to today. So if anybody wants to join, it's free. Just email me. And it's the Bruce Strober fan club. Bruce Strober is a dermatologist that I've known for some time that I just really enjoy personally and professionally. He always has something to offer that's relevant to us in clinical practice. And Bruce is a clinical professor of dermatology at Yale University, right? and also a practicing dermatologist at Central Connecticut Dermatology in Cromwell, Connecticut, where he's sitting right now uh, as we speak. So, Bruce, great having you here, and I'm looking forward to a great conversation. Thanks, Jim. It's great being here, and I'm also a fan club uh, president of the Jim Del Rosso fan club, just so it's mutual. But we charge a fee, though. We charge a fee. Uh, You charge a fee. Good luck. Good luck. Good luck. So, Bruce, there's so much to keep up on. I mean, obviously, atopic dermatitis is getting a lot of attention and many other diseases that we that we uh, treat and we're getting newer therapies for alopecia areata, vitiligo, um, other things coming up, uh, epidermolysis bullosa, uh, we're seeing some things, lichen planus, a lot of new information. Um, but Specifically with psoriasis, since you're, you're you're very involved with psoriasis, obviously, on a, on a clinical level and on a research level, and also really being involved with the different societies, what stands out in your mind as things that are important that are newer with regard to the disease state of psoriasis? Well, I think that uh, it's amazing. We keep seeing advances and continued interest from uh, pharmaceutical companies with regard to developing newer therapies. So lately, we've had the introduction of one new oral therapy, which is Ducravacitinib. Trade name is Sotictu, um, a once daily oral therapy that is really a new mechanism of action. It's uh, not like really any other MOA that we've currently encountered uh, previously, and it's and it's respectively respectfully uh, pretty effective. And then we have uh, two new topical therapies, also uh, brand new MOAs, different from each other. One is called Tepinarov. Uh, The trade name is Vitama, uh, and that's an aryl hydrocarbon receptor agonist, totally different MOA from the other one, which is uh, Rafumalast, which has got a trade name of Zareev. And uh, both are non-steroidals, essentially. Uh, Rifumilast, I should say, is a PDE4 inhibitor, uh, but a really potent one. It's different than one we've been encountering in the past from a topical standpoint. One that actually has really demonstrable efficacy versus placebo, a vehicle. Um, so two new topicals, 
non-steroidals, a new oral, and in the pipeline next year, we should have a new biologic, uh, which is called bimikizumab, blocks IL-17A and F. And in so doing, really looks to be the most potent systemic therapy we'll ever encounter for people with psoriasis, where nine out of 10 patients achieve a POSI 90 score. So, you know, there's no stopping here. Uh, there's actually, without going into details, quite a robust pipeline of other therapeutics uh, in phase two, maybe entering phase three for psoriasis. I don't think we're going to see the end of the road very, very soon with regard to new therapies for psoriasis. So that's talking about the treatment, but what about the disease state itself? Any new information that's important when we're seeing patients to be thinking about comorbidities? You know, you see a lot of lists of comorbidities and, and you're wondering, are these just associations by chance? What has more meaning that's related to actual psoriasis itself? Uh, any new information on that? And what would you recommend to myself when I'm seeing patients? What should I really be thinking about? Are there other clinicians they should be seeing, other specialists they should be seeing along with me? Well, the number one comorbidity is psoriatic arthritis. So we all know that we shouldn't lose sight of it. We should, we should really recognize at least one in five patients, if not one in three, are going to have significant psoriatic arthritis. So you always should be thinking about and screening for the presence of arthritis in patients with psoriasis and appropriately directing therapy along those lines. And if you're really not comfortable managing psoriatic arthritis, arranging for the proper referral to a rheumatologist. So that's your number one. Let me ask you a question on that before you may mention some other comorbidities. Mm -hmm. Are there a couple of questions that you use in the conversation to ask patients, it's almost like as your screening questions to say, oh, this patient likely has psoriatic arthritis. If there's not something that's visible, which there often is not. Right. So there's a, there should be a quick checklist. In my mind, I go through about five to seven questions. One is, has a doctor ever told you have an arthritis? Number two, do you have swollen or tender joints? It can just be one joint that kind of periodically appear. Do you have joint pain that awakens you in the middle of the night? Do you wake up or get up from a resting activity feeling incredibly stiff in your joints that lasts more than 30 minutes? Is there a, is there a family history of, of inflammatory arthritis that it may have occurred in a family member who also had psoriasis. Um, do you have neck stiffness? Do you have lower back stiffness? Those That battery of questions, I think, is sensitive enough to pick up most psoriatic arthritis that's either occurring now or has occurred in the recent past. And if you pick up yes, yeses to those questions, um, you really are doing a great service by trying to focus your therapy or your referral to include the possibility the patient has concomitant psoriatic arthritis. Now, what about, we always hear about MACE, um, it, you know, GI disorders, et cetera. Right. So what about the car cardiac? When, when, do, when should we be saying to a patient, you know, we, you really should be seeing an internist or a cardiologist because of your psoriasis? How do you get into that discussion? I think any adult patient with psoriasis of a significant amount or who has arthritis, because I think that elevates the inflammation in the body, but any moderate to severe patient should be plugged in with their PS, PCP uh, to have regular uh, screenings for other cardiac risk factors, hyperlipidemia, obesity, smoking, um, hypertension, insulin resistance. All of those go into the risk. But having psoriasis alone 
probably creates risk unto itself. And that's what you were alluding to earlier, Jim, which is what's something new? Well, we believe the more severe your psoriasis is, and that can be measured by POSI score or BSA, the greater it is you're going to have a cardiovascular event risk-wise over the course of your adult lifetime, and particularly um, between the ages of perhaps 40 and 65. And so really think about that age group as being a high risk group. And while the data are not exactly clear on the effects of treatment on this risk, in my heart of hearts, taking together all of the data we have, minimizing psoriasis burden on a patient probably confers cardiovascular benefit for that patient, reduces the risk of of heart attack, reduces the risk of stroke, probably reduces the risk of other comorbidities like kidney disease. Interesting. So obviously systemic therapy is beyond just taking care of plaques on their skin, which obviously they want to see benefit with that. So you mentioned we have a new therapy, oral decravacitinib, once a day, which is a tyrosine kinase 2 inhibitor within that JAK family. It's, it's a, it is a unique mechanism of action. The first time we're seeing that uh, available for clinical practice. Uh, but we've had other agents. Obviously, we've had oral apremolast, uh, Otesla. We want to mention all the brand names of products, so we're mm-hmm. fair to everyone. Uh, that we've had for some time. We certainly know what it does and what it has to offer. And we've had methotrexate and cyclosporin from previous years, right? That both of which, to my knowledge, correct, are FDA approved for psoriasis, right? Correct. So mm-hmm. those have FDA approval, but carry a different set of baggage, you might. And then we have all the selection of the different biologic agents. How has the conversation changed for you? Because uh, I remember when you taught me years ago about utilizing a tannorecept and methotrexate together. We're going way, way back. Mm-hmm. The conversations have obviously changed. How do you? embark on that conversation with the patient when you're introducing a systemic therapy? We move away from the older therapies. Increasingly, um, I'm just biased towards starting patients on a modern therapy. For example, an IL-23 inhibitor, an IL-17 inhibitor, or the oral therapeutics that we have at our disposal. Primarily in, me, in my shop, it's Ducravacitinib. To some extent, it's, it's a Premolast. But you know, it comes down to, you really wanna get this patient clear. And when you have options like an IL-23 and our IL-17 inhibitor that really have high probabilities of skin clearance, and importantly, really good tolerability, no laboratory monitoring in the midst of their therapy. Um, you know, it's kind of a no-brainer. Infrequent dosing. These are these are drugs that have made a world of difference for patients with regard to their experience having psoriasis because they're so effective and so easy. And and if you think about the IL-23 inhibitors, there's literally no contraindications to using them. You know, patients can have comorbidities, and you can still use these drugs and feel very confident that there's not going to be an adverse event of significance. So, you know, I've gone right to the modern therapeutics. Luckily, in the U.S., we have the ability to deliver through commercial insurance or through bridging programs and samples these drugs to patients right out of the gate. Now. One big difference is now with the advent of good oral therapy like ducravacitinib, you can say to the patient, look, we have an injectable approach, but we also have an oral approach. And the oral approach carries with it very good efficacy. And in my shop, no monitoring. You don't have to draw bloods on ducravacitinib except to pre-treatment tests 
for TV, for TV like quantiferon gold. But otherwise, it's also kind of an easy drug, once daily, uh, usually no side effects, and about a 60 to 65% chance of hitting a posi 75. So respectable efficacy, easy for patients. Some people just want oral drugs, oral therapeutics before they do an injectable, and that gives you that viable option. So it seems like this has created a situation where you can talk in that conversation about a greater likelihood that an oral treatment is going to get them to the levels that maybe some of the biologics have done in in the past or even now. Exactly. Dekravacitinib is really a breakthrough in that regard. It now it's better than methotrexate, has better efficacy. You know, it's probably as good as cyclosporin at most doses we use as cyclosporin, but it doesn't have anything like the toxicity of, of cyclosporin. It really doesn't have measurable toxicity at all. So it's this whole new concept of an oral once a day, no monitoring that actually delivers really a respectable efficacy without any side effects either. So um, from my point of view, it's a real breakthrough therapeutic um, and therefore probably is going to get a lot of uptake from a lot of different providers. So Bruce, we're going to take a pause here uh, to hear a message from our sponsor and I'll be back to you because I have a couple other things I want to ask you about. Let's pause for a message from our advertiser. Bristol Myers Squibb invites you to learn more about Sotictu, the Kravacitinib a new FDA-approved treatment option by visiting www.sotiktuhcp.com, spelled www.sotyktuhcp.com. So, Bruce, looking at this realistically, you know, what, what you're talking about with oral decravacitin of the once a day, my understanding is they recommend a baseline um, TB test like a quantiferon gold or skin test, whatever you, you choose to do in your practice, and periodic monitoring of lipids. But it, they're not real specific on exactly what to do with the lipids, to, to my recollection. And everything else is not necessarily considered to be mandatory as compared to JAK1, JAK2 inhibitors that we have where it's different. They have box warnings where Ducravacitinib does not have the box sure. warnings, even though it's within that Janus kinase family. So that was a big difference, you know, separating it out. You know, when we say there are no side effects, I think... You're, you're saying that it's not very likely to run into much that's going to be uh, you know, clinically relevant. It's probably not fair to say that any of these things have no side effects. But, no drug is um, free. Yeah. No drug is exactly. free of side effects. Right. And, uh, but I understand what you're saying relative to the other things that, that we were concerned about and monitoring even, even published guidelines, giving us restrictions on how long to do things. That's sort of fallen by the wayside, hasn't it? When we start a therapy that's working, it's very likely the patient's going to be on it a long time if it's working for them, correct? Yeah, that's very true. And, and, and that's one of the advantages of a lot of the therapeutics I just brought up. In responders, they keep responding. Um, and we believe decravacitinib is in the same camp, primarily because of its mechanism of action. It primarily works because it blocks IL-12 and 23. Uh, and we've encountered that MOA in the past with eustachinumab, Stellara. Uh, and we know that approach, blocking 12 and 23, somewhat gives longer durability and better uh, stability of response over the long haul. Um, so that's another aspect of it that I find very advantageous. 
Um, yeah, you, you mentioned lipids. I don't follow the lipids in the gravacinib patients primarily because the, the, um, the movement of lipids in the population of getting to gravacinib is very small. It's 10 milligrams per deciliter. Um, very small given that everyone's, you know, currently listening to this recording is basically uh, at 150 to 250 on their triglycerides. So what's a 10 milligram increase on average gonna mean from a risk standpoint? So I don't monitor that. There is something in the, in the label about if you had significant liver disease, you should follow the LFTs. That would be one exception to monitoring requirements for that drug. All right, so what, what's different about, you know, tick two, you know, when, when I think back to when I was first learning about Janus kinase enzyme and inhibition, they'd say the JAK-STAT pathway. It's not really one pathway. It's many potential pathways depending on what receptor you're inhibiting and what the downstream effect of that is. So correct me if I'm wrong, when you inhibit TIC2, you're affecting some of the immunologic pathways that you're trying to inhibit because they're involved in the pathophysiology of psoriasis, like you said, IL-12 and IL-23. But you're circumventing some of the other potential biologic effects or systemic activities that are unrelated to the immunologic that might have some of those downstream effects that which we're not looking to, for the patients to encounter, exactly. like blood clots and things of that nature. Can, can you uh, shed some light on how that was determined? Because that's a major difference. Yeah, it's, well, that's like, exactly what you're saying is certain cytokines mediate inflammation and immunologic issues. And some cytokines that are mediated by JAK kinases um, are actually governing pathways related to uh, growth factors, um, hematopoiesis, so with a JAK1 inhibitor or, or a JAK inhibitor in general, we have to worry about mo bone marrow. Um, and, and in other instances, we have to worry about cholesterol because those pathways can affect cholesterol metabolism. When you solely block TIC2, um, you're now not touching growth factor pathways that mediate the development of red cells, for example. So we don't have to worry about anemia. Um, and we don't have the, the effects on cholesterol. So we really don't have to monitoring those issues. Now we're balking 1223 and to some extent interferon, um, which might have an effect on psoriasis. But interestingly, tick 2 inhibition through Ducravacinib was just recently shown to be very effective for lupus. And that might be through its interferon inhibitory activities. Um, so I would like to just say, as an aside, look for this drug and others down the, the line that are in this category to be excellent drugs for systemic lupus and cutaneous lupus. Yeah, and there are other areas too where, where TIC2 seems to play a role potentially in the pathophysiology. So we're not done. This is just the beginning. But let's yes. get back to that Ducravacitinib. Uh, the patient that, I don't want to call him a depravacitinib, a patient that you're putting on, you're electing to put on depravacitinib, and then they're, they're, they're in agreement with you because we're, we're being patient-centric, right? We're making right. sure the patient is, is consenting to what, and they've got, you've gone through everything with them. What can they expect when they start to take the medication? Take it with food or without food, does it matter? Are they going to run into some GI side effects? How quickly will it kick in in the majority of patients where they're going to see a visible difference? So can you walk me through the course of the first few months of that patient? 
Yeah. So one thing you should counsel the people starting to cravacitinib is it's not the most rapidly acting medication. I think you've got to give it at least eight weeks to really discern measuring a measurable improvement in the psoriasis. That's a key point. And, and many patients might give up if you were to tell them you're going to immediately see improvement. So you got to tell them, counsel them two months before we really decide what's going on here and probably three to four to see the full effect. Um, the other issue is and, you're not going to... And Bruce, we've seen that with bi biologics too in certain patients. Not everybody is kicked in immediately. This is not atopic dermatitis where the itching shuts off in two days. It's a different disease. So exactly. we're talking about a different disease state. So um, I interrupted you. So Jim Dalrasso, shut up and let's get back to Bruce. No, no. Think, think of Decrevacin more like Stellara. We needed a couple doses really to before we saw something happening, but nevertheless, things could happen very positively. Um, the other thing is uh, you were mentioning side effects. You shouldn't see gastrointestinal intolerance. Uh, you should not see nausea, diarrhea. They actually compared those rates to a premolast in a head-to-head -head study, two head-to-head -head studies, and show those rates are much like placebo. Um, you might see a little acne, acne formation. Um, you might see a slightly elevated risk for upper respiratory tract infection, and there's a slightly elevated risk for herpes virus infections, particularly localized herpes infections. So let's say somebody breaks out with herpes labialis when they're on it. Yes. Do they stop it or you just treat through it with a oral antiviral? The latter. I would, I would just treat through it and, you know, give something like valcyclovir or whatever your favorite cyclovir is to that patient and get them through it. Uh, there doesn't appear to be a zoster signal. Uh, to my eyes, Ducravacin doesn't appear to have a zoster signal. Uh, but that said, you could always see herpes zoster. It's never a bad idea to have patients vaccinated with Shingrix. You can do so down to the age of 18 in patients on immunosuppressive therapy. Right. And the insurance that's should non, cover That's it. the non-live vaccine. It takes... Correct. Now, do you have to get that both injections done before you put them on the decravacitinib, or can they get the the vaccine while they're taking the decravacitinib? You know, we don't have a full accounting of the effects of decravacitinib on vaccinations yet. So until then, I would advise a hiatus from drug from you know three days before and four days after the vaccine, like a seven-day break. Until we have more data on this issue, that's what I'm advising. There might be a time in the future where we're, we're going to tell you, and you don't have to stop it. You just get the vaccine through it. But I don't think we're there right now. Um, you did mention drug interactions. There are no known drug interactions with Ducravacinib, so that makes it easy. You can take it with food. You can take it on an empty stomach. That's not an issue as well. So it sounds from a practical standpoint, it's uh, pretty user-friendly in that regard. Um, yeah. In very terms easy of not friendly. worrying about what meal you're taking it with or whatever. Um, now, what about when do you perceive, on the average, a patient's going to hit their their peak effect? And if they're at that point, let's say they get to, you know, PASI 75 by month three or whatever, whatever it might be. Is that where they're going to stay? Or if you treat longer, will they climb up slowly to get even greater improvement? What happens in most cases? Yeah, the data show that probably the peak efficacy in an average patient is between week 16 and 24. So four to six months in. Again, that's what that Stellara-like pattern is, you know, still always the same. You didn't really see peak efficacy at week 16 necessarily. So tell a patient, you know, things can continue to improve even up to week 24, half a year into the therapy. All right. So, but, but people are going to see enough that they're 
they're happy with it and they'll stay on it. It's not as if it's not doing anything and suddenly at month five it kicks in. They're going to see that progressive Im- improvement. Yeah, that's why I like a, a week eight time point, you know, are we in the right direction? Are you 50% improved at least at week eight? That would like that would be my, my uh, litmus test for success. So with Ducravacitinib being new, um, if patients had been previously treated with another therapy, let's say they've been on methotrexate, cyclosporine, even oral apremolast, and now you're going to oral Ducravacitinib, or even if they've been on a biologic previously, does it make a difference if they're fully systemic treatment naive or if they've been on other therapies in terms of how they're going to respond? You know, in general, as a rule, I, I believe any person who's naive to therapy, totally naive, has a higher probability of success. That's all our studies show that. Um, and therefore, a person who's been through the ringer, as I say, has been through a lot of biologics or a premolast, methotrexate, and had trouble with those, they're probably a lower probability of full success on Ducravacitinib. It doesn't mean you can't get full of success. It's just the probabilities go down a little bit, maybe by about five to 10 percentage points. Okay. So it's still pretty close to what they were. They're just a little drop off is what, what we've seen with a lot of other therapies. So Bruce, this has been fantastic, but I'm going to ask you one more question. How do you recommend keeping up with all the information and being able to extract what's really relevant for a clinician? You know, I, I actually believe at meetings and CME meetings is where it's best done, uh, where it's all put into a one, two or three lectures or discussions um, that you get your best condensed approach, because there you're seeing all medications brought up within a solitary segment of time. You know, of course, you read the journals. Um, of course, you go to one off programs. But in general, when you do that, you only get one drug and you only get one perspective. Um, I really am a big believer in settings whereby you're getting kind of the landscape of what's going on, what's new and what's old, and how are we doing it? Case-based approaches are a nice nice addition to that kind of didactic as well. So, you know, I kind of, I encourage people, make the trip, go to a CME meeting of repute once a year, um, which has good lineup of speakers that you think are really going to give you a fair uh, point of view on all the drugs and then take copious notes and go up and talk to the speakers right afterward and and, and, t- and give them questions about cases. Because I know I'm always available after I give a talk, get off the stage, three people come up to me. Hey, Dr. Strober, I had this patient. How do you do it? I love that. I love that whole approach. Um, that's my bias there, Jim. Yep, and I, 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 I seem to think that podcasts may play a good role too. So oh, they're, I hope they're, people... actually I forgot. The best. Yes. Yeah, the best. Right. <laughs> well, Bruce, thank you so much. It's great talking to you and I always appreciate your time and I'm I'm sure I'll be seeing you soon and talking to you soon. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Jim. Thank you for having me on this podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at podcasts at fred.health. And most importantly, if you like this episode, subscribe to the Derms and Conditions podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Thanks for joining us. And now a message from our advertiser. At last, Sotiktu, the Kravacitinib, now approved as a treatment option by the FDA. Bristol-Myers Squibb invites you to learn more by visiting www.sotiktuhcp.com, spelled www.sotyktuhcp.com.
hcp.com.